this is now the time of correction. We've started. I think it's different than any other hard market we've hit because traditionally a hard market lasts six months, maybe a year. The auto market started going hard six, seven years ago. Hi, I'm Mark Gagan of The Voice of Insurance. The voice you just heard was the CEO of Prime Insurance, Rick Lindsay. Prime is a small, very fast-growing and very well-performing U.S. Excess and Surplus, or ENS, insurance company. Prime now writes in all 50 U.S. states. Now, everyone agrees that the U.S. ENS market is one of the markets with the most interesting dynamics anywhere in the insurance world. In sharp contrast to a backdrop of global softness and overcapacity, in the past few years, some of its more stressed classes have seen consistent compound rate rises. These moves have been fascinating to me and other observers of the global wholesale specialty and reinsurance markets. And that's why I was delighted to catch up with Rick in London. Rick has been in the US ENS market all his working life and knows everything there is to know about the ups and downs in this specialist field. And what's more, being an owner of part of his own balance sheet gives Rick a huge amount of credibility. Of course, he also has strong views and he doesn't pull any punches. And that's why I can highly recommend the interview that follows. Now, I started off by asking Rick to do a brief introduction of Prime Insurance for any listeners who are not familiar with the company. Enjoy the listen. Prime was an uh, original member of the Illinois Insurance Exchange. And uh, in 1995, I went to Illinois and took over Prime as the manager bought uh, 5% of the company, and uh, it was C-rated at the time. Uh, The Illinois Insurance Exchange was running into trouble at that point. Many of the syndicates had written property risks in Texas and Florida with the big storms. So states were kicking the exchange out um, based on, you know, the, the syndicate problem. So when I took over Prime, it was probably at the worst possible uh, it was kind of subprime. Time, yeah. And, you know, the exchange was failing. I tried to save the exchange because I do believe in the subscription market, right? I think the Lloyd's marketplace where you have a lead and, and following syndicates to write and share risk is a great model when it's executed properly. When it's not executed properly, obviously it can go bad on you like anything. But, uh, you know, Prime was in, I think, 40 maybe 38 states. We got kicked out of a couple, Texas and Louisiana, when the exchange got into trouble. Um, And then after an attempt to save the exchange, we worked out with the insurance department there to form Prime Insurance Company and merge the syndicate into Prime. Uh, And since then, you know, we had RLI put capital in. They're one of my biggest shareholders at 24%. And um, in the last five years, we've grown from, I don't know, 30, 50 million to 223 million we'll we'll write this year. And that's, you know, about 50% auto and 50% GL, professional, other liability. Um, We do some property, but not a lot of property. Does it tend to be the more stressed sort of property? Is it kind of coastal or that kind of stuff? No. I would say right now the coastal property market is underpriced and it's 
not something we're interested in because you can't have a happy customer at the end of the transaction, right? They don't want to buy flood. They don't want to buy wind. And then when the event happens, the lawyers are going to get involved and, you know, it's just a bad deal all the way around. So, you know, one of my rules is I want happy customers. And I think the way that you keep happy customers is you don't compete with stupid and you don't insure stupid. Because there's a lot of insureds out there who don't understand, um, you know, the the situation. Um, That's some pretty strong growth uh, there, Rick. And probably it's a good way of bringing us into talking about the market. I mean, how much is that the your own uh, your own growth plans working out uh, and the classes of business that you've been in uh, expanding or just getting better rate? And or and how much of that is um, the market itself changing? It, it certainly sitting here in London, the uh, you know it seems it's very interesting the way that the the the, the ENS market has been developing, particularly in some of the, the you know the more difficult auto classes. Um, how 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 fast uh, how much of that growth is down to the rate, and how much is down to your own business growth? Yeah, I think you know the the growth is a matter of the market it has nothing to do with us, right? And that's what I tell my marketing people when they want to take credit for doing such a great job, right? We, we did a great job marketing before the market turned. But, you know, one of the things I always tell investors or regulators mainly because they want a business plan. And I always say, well, you tell me what my competition's going to do and then I can tell you my what I'm going to do. I don't believe in putting together business plans where you go out and you drive the market down, right? So we don't attack, we don't target business. We basically sit back and wait for people to run into trouble where they need a real insurance partner that wants a happy customer at the end of the day. And in many cases, that means we give them broader coverage, not more narrow coverage, but that means you get the right rate. You're not competing on price. So, you know, we we're growing now and I've been told by many a regulator and many rating agencies that I'm growing too fast. And I basically told them I've been waiting 40 years for the right market. I'm not going to, I'm not going to slow down when it's the right time to be writing business. Um, so by implication there, what you're saying, this is definitely the right market. This is, this is, this is a good market. And how long is it since it's been this good? Well, I mean, in 1985, there was an insurance crisis in the U.S. And, you know, other people would say that there's been hard markets since then. Course, you know, for historians, that's that's the time when, you know, Marsh set up uh, Ace and Excel on Bermuda to, right. to solve the liability crisis. Right. Yeah. So, to me, that was the last crisis or the last hard market. There's been some, you know, ups and downs and changes in the market, but to me, you know, this is now the time of correction. We've started. I think it's different than any other hard market we've hit because traditionally a hard market lasts six months, maybe a year. The auto market started going hard six, seven years ago. Now, that's when we wrote our first trucking account that we still write today in California. In fact, when I wrote it six years ago, it was on Lloyd's paper because I wasn't in California because I didn't have enough surplus. So we were one of the only Lloyd's cover holders that could issue auto in all, you know, in, in the states you can issue auto on an ENS basis. And uh, so, yeah, I, I'm, you know, I'm happy 
that it's not a traditional hard market that gives us time to digest and look at it. And I do believe that other lines, DNO, Umbrella, GL, Liquor, I think all of that is going to go through the same phase. And I think it's all driven by the legal system in the U.S. So it's all about the social inflation trends that we've, we've been reading a lot about. Is that is that what it is? It's all just chickens slowly coming home to roost. Well, I, I, I think that... Uh, you know, as an industry, we, we've we in a lot of ways caused our own problems because we fuel the fire by mismanaging claims, insuring the wrong people. And so, you know, again, when you insure somebody's home in Florida and you let them underinsure and then you don't give them flood and wind, you are setting yourself up for a shit show. Right, they are gonna come suing. Right, I I have a place in Florida, and every time I go there, I get a ad for cheaper insurance. Right, I can get cheaper insurance, but they're not offering me flood or wind. I got to get that separately. And every time I turn on the TV, the lawyers are saying you got a problem with your homeowner's claim. You know, Morgan and Morgan specifically advertises for you know upset homeowners. So, you know, we do some coastal, but very, very little. Um, but we make sure we give them everything they need so that we can have a happy customer. So that you're, so would it be right to say that, you, you know, you, you run towards classes that are getting signs of distress rather than running away from them, but, you then, but it means you can really select the risk and you can do the right coverage at what is going to be the right price and give the right levels of service so you don't get into too much litigation, you can pay the claims properly. Correct. I mean, I you know, again, we we do business with wholesalers, and when they submit us a risk, we we tell them we need to talk to the insured. We do not quote a risk unless we talk to the insured, and that to me lays the proper foundation for a good relationship and to make sure that we all have an understanding of what the strategy is and what the expectations are and what the outcomes can be. Um, you know, I, 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 I call it throwing quotes over the wall, right? I, I want to see the person that I'm going to be managing the claim with. I don't want to throw some quote over the wall and have the first time that we're ever, you know, talking to each other is when you've had a claim. That's great. Um, one of the uh, 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 very senior wholesale uh, broker from the States, that like, one of the last ones I spoke to, he described the whole, this kind of secular change that happens periodically in in, in um, the excess and surplus lines market and its relationship that it has uh, with the admitted lines market. He he described it, it was the beginning of last spring, and he described it as, as, as he calls it the dump, when this is when uh, the admitted lines market, after a prolonged period of soft soft market uh, uh, has been writing for income perhaps more than, than results and has been getting into specialty classes that it probably doesn't really understand been, and retaining a lot more of that risk that might traditionally have been uh, written in the excess and surplus science market and then now this is the point where they've had enough with that anymore and they wanna, they're going to stop doing that and they're going to, as he described it, dump the risk right. back onto the uh, excess and surplus science market. Is, is that a fair description of, what, of what's been happening? Is, it, there, is there just a very large increase in the amount of submissions that uh, the ENS market is getting? Uh, would, you, would you agree with that? Um, 
you know, I think in, in the auto market, definitely, right? So a lot of the auto, and, and we write auto in some states as an admitted carrier, but I would tell you that it's really ENS business, right? It's the trucks in that state that the admitted market doesn't think you can write, whether it's trash trucks because they're having trouble. Hazardous on, materials, yeah, chemicals, you know. that kind of so, stuff. So, you know, but I do think that... Um, you know, as a general rule, the admitted companies um, thought they were missing out on the ENS business. So most of them either bought an ENS company, or I would say the majority of them started an MGA, where they've tried to get coverholder agreements. And I know some of them do have coverholder agreements over here. So, um, you know, but I think it's a lot harder than than uh, they thought it would be to not only keep. Um, you know, underwriters and, and keep your MGA agreements in place because that's really where I started was as, as an MGA nationwide programs. And, you know, I knew I needed to get my own insurance company because I didn't want to be searching for new underwriters every three to five years all the time. That's a full-time job, right? If you're an MGA, keeping your markets happy and talking underwriters into you know, doing things the way that you was an expert in, in the field you see that you can make money, right? And they don't agree with you in most cases. They see it totally different. Uh, and then when the claims come in, you're arguing with the lawyers about how to how to manage the claims. So as an MGA, I was frustrated. Um, and as an insurance company, I'm very happy. Have you traded one lot of difficult people for another lot? What about your investors, or are they slightly different? Are they happy because you have to keep them happy financially? Is that is that? Yeah, so? no. I mean, right now, my reinsurers and investors are very happy. Obviously, if the numbers turn on us, they won't be so happy. But um, you know, again, I think that we we've done this since 1979, and you know, we talked a little bit before this about tort reform and whether tort reform in the u.s will ever take hold and when i was young and stupid i believed in tort reform i don't believe in tort reform i don't believe it'll ever happen i believe we have the greatest legal system in the world right and it's fair but it's very expensive meaning you have to be willing to spend money right and in the insurance business we're trying to save money and I think that's why we lose, right? When when a small business buys insurance from an insurance company, and one of the examples I like to use with people is let's pretend like there's no insurance, right? You get sued frivolously, right? How are you going to feel about that? Well, when you get sued frivolously and you buy insurance, they say stuff like, oh, we're not suing you. We're suing your insurance company. Well, they're suing you. Your insurance company is going to pay, and you're going to live with the results for the next 10 years or beyond. So, you know, as, as, as an insurance company, we have the ability to do what, as an MGA, I couldn't do, right? So that, that's why I like being an insurance company. I'd like to get back into some of the specific classes. So trucking, obviously, you're saying it's been hardening for six, seven years. Um, that's partly because of frequency and severity have also been increasing. You know, people texting texting their spouses while they're sort of out on the highway and not looking where they're going and that kind of stuff. Um, so once you, when you run towards those kind of risks, um, 
what do you do? I mean, uh, so do you just get really start risk managing those risks on the, on their behalf and and and, and get in with those trucking firms and the, the ones that you know are going to be be better or, you, you, or how, how do you approach um, the underwriting of those kind of risks? I mean, basically, we talk to every insured and we get again a, a, an underwriting sense of what we think they would be as a partner and if they've had claims from texting or you know I don't care what it is an account that had a four million dollar you know claim my first question to them is how are we going to prevent that from happening again and let's come up with some ideas um you know on the trucking end obviously everybody's doing stuff now that you know they wish they would have done before but all the telematics all the cameras there's still some people who don't want cameras they you know when you talk to them they, they don't want them and i say so why don't you want them and they say, well it'll show when i do something wrong it'll show when i'm at fault and i actually tell them that's a good thing right you don't you don't want to manage claims from a position that you know you weren't wrong and then find out later it was your fault right so the sooner you know um, the facts of the case, the sooner you should be able to settle that claim. And um, so, you know, it's insured cooperation. It's 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 the partnership with the insured because at some point in the U.S. you're going to end up at war with a lawyer. And it's, it's a partnership between the insured and the insurance company to come out um, whole or best at the end of the deal. The lawyers are obviously trying to drive a wedge between the insurance company and the insured, and they, they're able to do that quite successfully in most cases. And that's why everybody's afraid of bad faith. That's why everybody's afraid of spending money. Um, the way you manage bad faith is you never leave your insured. Right? The only time that you get in trouble with an insured is when you abandon them and you've taken their money, and then they make you look stupid. So number one, qualify people a little bit before you take their money and feel good that you have a chance you know as an industry i fear that we see everything going to the black box online eliminate underwriters and they think that some system they create is going to solve the problems and i'm predicting right now that that's going to enhance the problems it's going to make it worse they're not going to get what they hope um i think you got to combine the people the experience and, and the expertise with technology. But, you know, the best technology we have is they can take pictures of the accident on their phone. They, you know, they, they can do real simple things. It's not about a black box that's going to do it online, which is what I see everybody doing. So we've got, uh, we've got trucking. Um, what are the classes now that you're seeing emerging, uh, emerging distress in and the sort of things that you're putting in your business plan to think, right, we're going to want to do some more of these? All right. So I'd say, you know, the biggest um, increase in our business is a direct result of our competition. So Atlas is somebody who rode a lot of non-emergency medical vehicles, a lot of taxi cabs. We've always done a lot of that. They've just run into trouble within the last 60 days, so we certainly expect to see more of that. Um, you know, the umbrella market, the DNO market, the GL market, the recreation market, um, all show signs of hardening. But for the most part, you know, I try and look at it to try and understand what's going on on the other side of the fence, right? I know what I would do, but in most cases, if somebody has a program for parasailing, 
they're going to try and keep that, right? Now, there's going to be pressure on them to get rid of it from, you know, Lloyd's overseers or whoever's looking over it, reinsurers. But they're, they're going to purge or get rid of the problem accounts first, and they're going to keep what they see as the good accounts. And, you know, one of my reinsurers that writes trucking, I said, so how do you write trucking? And they said, oh, we write the trucks who aren't going to have a claim. And today you don't know which truck. You, 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 there's certainly some that are going to have more claims, but even the best insureds today are going to have a claim. And you're going to have the legal system trying to leverage that to the best result possible. And as an industry, I think we've lost our way. We, we allow that legal system in the U.S. to leverage it to its maximum. And so when I hear, you know, the stories over here in London, the casualty crisis and the frequency and, uh, you know, I, I don't see all of that. I don't. I see that for 20 years as an industry, we've competed on price and we really don't know how to manage claims anymore. What we do is we try and hire other people to do our job. So as a company, Prime, we do everything in-house, underwriting, claims, risk management. You've got your own lawyers in-house, haven't you? Right. And risk management people, you know, we go visit each insured after. But it is, to me, about a partnership with an insured that's not naive, right, that, that you can have a good foundational relationship with. And then when you come under attack in the legal system that we live in in the U.S., you you have the ability to come out successfully no matter the facts of the accident. Just don't let the system abuse you. So we're in this upswing, uh, uh, which is you know, good good times for you guys that you're able to get the price that you think probably more often than not or more likely to start getting the sort of prices that you, you know you need to charge uh, for the risks that you want. Um, how long do you think this upswing is like to, likely to last? Because obviously they never seem to last as long as hard markets never last as long as soft markets. Uh, just certainly in my experience. How long do you think we've got? Uh, you've got to sort of um, get some really good business on the books and to grow into this harder market. Well, again, I think that most markets cycle. You know, I'd say six months to a year. So this one started in the auto sector five, six, seven years ago. Um, I, you know, I hope that it's going to continue for the next 10 years through each sector, each line, each class of business. Um, you know, I don't see, I know there's plenty of capital in the market, right? Everybody's got plenty of capital for the past 10, 15 years. They've been willing to, to lose at this point. I see them saying, we're not going to lose money anymore. And I don't see that changing. Um, there will be new money come in, which there always is. Um, you know, even in a soft market, there were risk retention groups formed that competed directly with me. They're not around anymore. So part of being a good insurance company is you've got to be able to stand the test of time and wait for stupid competition to go away. Right. And how long do you think we've got, though? I, I, I think it's the next 10 years. I, I think it's just going to continue to escalate because the lawyers are winning. In the United States, the lawyers are winning. They, they have as much money to spend on TV advertising as the big insurance companies do. So to me, that's an indicator that, you know, the, 
the, the legal problem in the U.S. is what drives all this. And people write property thinking it's short tail. It's not short tail anymore. The lawyers are coming after you now years after the event. Yeah, that's a good observation, Rick. Um, um, you're growing pretty fast. What, what sort of what are you projecting for 2020 as your GWP? I mean, again, I would say that you know we're probably gonna continue to grow at the same pace we have for the last couple of years because I don't see the market getting softer yet. In fact, I think it's probably escalating a little. So, um, depending on how much capital we raise in in uh, the new year, which is one of our plans, is to form a second company to provide additional capacity and, and ability to write more. Um, but, you know, I, I would say we'll, we'll get close to $300 million and it could possibly go above that. But that has more to do with the other markets than me because I'm not going to go in and beat. You're just doing more of the same. Right. Would, will you be increasing your headcount? You, do you think you'll be doing, you will be selling more policies and more insurance? Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, we, I, I don't know how many people we added last year, but 40 and we're expanding offices in Chicago, we just expanded a big office, hired a bunch of people. Uh, we're opening up in um, Exton, PA, an office there. We have the office in Naples, Florida, and then Salt Lake City, Utah is where the majority of our employees are. But yeah, we'll we'll continue to grow. And we, I mean, historically, since 1986, I've always been overstaffed, right? I, I don't think that that's an, an option. And obviously, as you have a team of people, um, you know, some of them need to be purged and some new people need to be brought in. So it's, it's always this um, evolution of trying to add good people to the team. And I can tell you in the last year, we've added, you know, a lot of good people. I think that as our industry evolves, there's a lot of frustrated people out there that want the tools and the skills and the resources that allow them to leverage their expertise and occupation. And how much is that down to the retrenchment of some of your competitors? Has that been good for you that you've been able to pick off a few people you've had your eye on for a long time? No, I haven't had my eye on anybody for a long <laughs> time. Um, you know, I've met people over the course of time and um, brought them on board, and I hope to do the same. Um, but... Uh, you know, it's 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 just an evolutionary process. A lot of people are retiring; they're just getting the heck out. They're 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 done. Um, you know, we could sell, but we we could have sold for the last ten years at different points. But again, I think that you know our business is a marathon, not a sprint. And I think that that's you know really the the foundation of what we have. I've been doing the same thing. I'm not selling. I plan on being here for the next 20 years. And I do think, you know, I've waited for this market for a long time, and I do think it's here, and I do think it'll be, you know, different than the past short cycles. I think we're actually maturing as an industry, and that might be because of the legal system in the U.S., and so in terms of the support you've been getting from your reinsurers, you, we've just come through a 1-1 renewal. Have you been happy with the way that's come out? You've been able to, obviously, you're, you're, you're targeting growth. Have you had the same similar mentality from your, from your supporting reinsurers? Or, or, because we know that some of them have had a slight change of heart and you know that, that whole, the, the market's change of heart has been global in many respects. Uh, how, how's the renewal been for you? Well, I think, 
you know, like everything, when things are going good, you know, our renewals were very easy. We have all kinds of people wanting to come on our renewal and, and join our our uh, our model. And so, you know, Berkshire Hathaway is, is my lead. Uh, RLI, Transatlantic, XL, AXA, Catlin, however you refer to them now. I guess it's AXA. Um, and, you know, we had a lot of other people that wanted to come on that I basically had to say no to. Um, but I also am you know, aware of the fact that if our results started to turn, they'd be jumping ship just as quick as they want to get on. So I've been doing this a long time. And, you know, when you perform, people want to do business with you. When you don't, they're they're going to jump ship and run. Super. You're performing at the moment. So you've been posting a sub 80 combined ratio. I mean, how do you do that? Well, I would say it's because we do our job, which is, we work with our insureds on a partnership basis and when you have you know the unfortunate claim that happens you can take a lot of different strategies and tax on that which obviously the legal system in the u.s has their goals in mind the plaintiff's lawyers don't lack any any uh for you know doing what they think their job is and so now, I can tell you, I think my job is to counterbalance the plaintiff's lawyers. That's our industry's job, and I think we failed at it. So what I do to produce that result, and I'll give you one example, is a trucking company in Naples, Florida, had a big claim. Nobody would insure them, so I got them on the phone. I said, what happened? Oh, AIG paid this claim, and they shouldn't have. I said, Okay. So if that happens again, you're going to want to fight, right? Because I'm going to want to fight. That's that's what you're complaining about is that AIG didn't fight and they should have. Yeah, yeah. So eight months into the policy, his truck's driving down the road 60 miles an hour, gang of nine motorcycles, 90 miles an hour, flies by him. One of them hits his truck, quadriplegic. So they sue, you know, two years down the road. They're making a policy limit demand, and the insured's calling me with his lawyer, telling me he wants to settle. And I said, so you remember the conversation we had where, you know, this is a frivolous lawsuit. You didn't do anything wrong. We should fight this. But if you tell me to pay it, I'm going to go pay it because you're the boss. You're the insured, right? That's why, you know, your claim last year went bad is because you told AIG to settle it. It wasn't AIG. So... Anyway, um, after talking him off the cliff and talking him into, you know, focus on the facts, this guy ran into your truck, you didn't do it. Um, within three months, the plaintiff's lawyer dropped the case with prejudice, never to be filed again. So I got rid of that case. We'd spent 40 grand. We were ready to go to trial. Zero claim. Now, I submit to you that people I know, if they would have written that claim, they would have hired a big law firm, or if they'd have written that insured, and that claim came in, they'd have hired the biggest law firm in Florida, they'd have been scared to death, because it's Florida, South Florida, they would have spent 200 grand on playing like they were going to defend it, and then they would have paid the limit of a million dollars. So you're talking about an outcome of 1.2 million versus 40,000. So that's how Prime makes money.
And um, you, now that you're growing so fast, do you think there's a point at which you do you ever lose touch with that that way of doing business? Is it could you ever be a two billion dollar insurer and and still keep that philosophy? I I believe yeah. I mean I think that over the years I've met some very large uh, insurance company presidents and they ask me the same thing, right? They say, how do you do it? I say, I talk to every insured, have a relate, not me personally, but my people, my crew. This is a model where now my 42 underwriters do what I do and, you know, call me in when needed. But, um, you know, yeah, I'm, I'm going to continue to do that. And when I tell that to people, they all say, oh, we could never do that. And I always think, thank goodness. I'm glad you think you can't do that because that'll that'll keep our model unique. But I think that's all. That's what everybody in the insurance business should do. You shouldn't take people's money unless you really understand the job and are willing to do the hard work. Um, Rick, we're sitting here in London, which is great for me. It's, it saves me coming out to Salt Lake City to, to, to find you over there, which is one of the good things about London. We're lucky that... People pass through every now and again, maybe once a year or so, so we can grab people when they're here. Right. Uh, we, we, you know, we, we're lucky in that respect. Um, but what's what's been your relationship with the London market? And uh, you know, it, it's been through um, some re-underwriting, reappraisal of, of what it what it should be doing over the last eighteen months. Uh, certainly, on you know, particularly in your market. Um, how's that experience been? And and what's your view in terms of some of the reforms that are going ahead in Lloyd's. Are you encouraged by some of that? Some of the stuff that, do you think that those are reforms that need to be done, um, make the place more efficient? Um, anyway, I'd just love to have your view or as someone who's been probably coming to London and interacting with London for, for a very, very long time. Right. Well, I mean, I have, you know, a lot of good friends over here um, that have supported me since 1994. And, um, well, even before that, because they were on the reinsurance with Homestead, so they were familiar with us. But, um, you know, I've been a cover holder, and really I used Lloyd's paper as an A-rated option, right? Because I wasn't A-rated, and I wasn't in all the states. And um, now that Prime is in all 50 states, and I have my own ability to, to, to do it all, I really you know, prefer Lloyd's as a reinsurer. Um, and so, you know, I believe in the lead follow uh, model. I think that's the way to provide capacity and spread the risk. And that's why I tried to save the Illinois Insurance Exchange back when I showed up theirs because that was one of the problems with it is they didn't share risk. They all operated like their own little insurance company, which, to be honest with you, is something I've seen over here more recently as the bigger syndicates get bigger they want a hundred percent of everything and they they try and apply pressure and i've i've successfully and then that gets you into trouble i presume yeah because you're putting all your eggs in one basket you know when people leave people change you know so to me uh, a, a stable of supporters is better than than you know one big syndicate um so that's what I have is a stable of supporters over here. Right now I'm, you know, negotiating with Lloyd's syndicates um, to be able to do more business with them. Um, right now it's just a reinsurance relationship. Um, the cover holder agreement was, I think, expired about a year ago. And prior to that I wasn't in California, New York. Um, 
So, you know, when I got in California and New York, then Deloitte's paper and my rating isn't really as valuable as it was before. And then, you know, I would tell you that my frustrations with Lloyd's are they rely on lawyers too much, right? I mean, I rely on lawyers too, but I don't let them lead me, right? I'm the insurance guy. They're the lawyer. They're risk adverse. And I have to give them backbone when it makes a difference. And clients, insureds tend to listen to lawyers like they listen to doctors, like they're the smartest guy in the room, which they may be, but they're not always the one with the best idea or the best result. So, you know, um, I like the partnership with the insured. I think, you know, that's, that's the key foundation of having a good uh, insurance relationship. I mean, I have very, very highly skilled people, mountain guides that take people to Mount Everest, right? I've insured for 35 years and they could now get cheaper insurance, but they won't because they understand the value of the partnership and they understand I'm going to represent them like other people wouldn't when the chips are down. So, you know, I think my hope is, is that I can continue to do business with my London partners, um, you know, combining our resources so that we all benefit from it. But most importantly, we have happy insureds at the end of every transaction. So you've got a more mature relationship, you say, with them now because, you know, you're an equal partner with them. Right. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, I, there's a bunch of great guys over here. Um, the U.S. legal system is very, very, you know, um, confusing and scary, but... As I said earlier, I think it's the best system in the world. You just have to know the facts, and then you have to be willing to spend the money, which is really what, you know, if an insured didn't have insurance, they would fight a lot of these frivolous lawsuits, um, but they couldn't afford to. They don't have the money. So, you know, insurance companies have really become these settlement machines when in many cases we should be fighting to set the future precedent the same way that the plaintiffs are uh, setting precedent with their cases. So to me, since in my 40-year career, I remember when my dad came home and it was big that, you know, lawyers were going to start freely advertising now. And, you know, at that point, probably didn't realize the effect of it now. But the effect of it today is that they're winning. The lawyers are winning. That's why severity's up. And, you know, accidents are up because there was marshlands there 20 years ago. Now there's a subdivision there, right? Now where there wasn't a stoplight, now there's four stoplights in that town. So, yeah, there's going to be more accidents, right? That's that's just the nature of, of, of growth. But how efficiently are we managing claims and paying claims? That's our job, right? We're not supposed to overspend and overpay claims. That's not what our insureds, again, if you go back to pretend there was no insurance, insureds could do better. The The business could do better on their own with no insurance in most cases when they get involved with a lawyer. So, and the best example of that is criminal cases in the U.S. You know how much it costs you if you got a felony in the U.S. to, to hire a lawyer? Guess what it is? 
No idea. I mean, most people think they need a million-dollar policy, right, if I got accused of a crime. You can get a defense for $25,000 of a felony. You know why? It's because there's no insurance. If you had insurance, the bill would go up to whatever the limit of the policy was. They would work their way up there. They'd make it as big a job as they can. So to some extent, you know, as an insurance company, again, we settled the quadriplegic case on the truck case. I had another case with a physician that died backcountry skiing with us. And with one of my guides, I've insured for 35 years, world expert, world class. He never thought he would have a claim because he's the best. But even the best has a claim. And um, this gentleman from New York had skied with him many, many years and died, unfortunately, in an avalanche. And within 90 days, we settled that claim for $30,000. And I don't, you know, number one, your insured has to report it to you and trust you. Right. In most cases, most insureds don't trust their insurance company. They they either don't report it because they figure they didn't do anything wrong, and then we get late notice. You know, I knew about the accident within five minutes. We had our experts ready, we had our lawyers ready, but we're trying to settle the claim. We're not trying to spend money and protect ourselves. Um, we're working with our insured to get to the the end of the, the the end of the road in the most efficient way so you know i think that um outsourcing is at the root of most problems in our business when you outsource it sounds good sounds cheap you know i could run my company with a lot less people and a lot less money but i think i would be losing money but it's um uh, looking at your expense ratios it's they're not out of line anyway so it's a false economy is what you're saying right well and our our model is such that you know we don't we don't really give our pen away right we we work with wholesalers on a partnership basis like i do my reinsurers we give them access to our system um so they can be free to to operate but um you know, um, doing it in-house and owning it. And if you have a partner, whether it's an outside lawyer or an outside MGA or risk management, it's a team effort, right? You're working on it together and you all see the, the same vision. And I remember back when I was 17 and USF&G was a big insurance company in the United States and they were next to my dad's office. And they wrote the amusement park there in Utah, which always boggled my mind, right? That's an ENS type thing. But in the old days, USF&G was a big open office. They had underwriters in one line of chairs, risk managers in another, and claims guys in another. And before they wrote a risk, they all three went out and looked at it. Then when the claims came in, they all three had the same strategy and mindset. Today, we had a situation with Lloyd's where Lloyd's auditor came over and told me I couldn't attend the claims meetings anymore because I was the named underwriter. So there's this desire to separate claims from underwriting because when you um, hire it out, now there's this chance that there's this conflict or manipulations that's going on. So you want a Chinese wall between the underwriters and the claims. Now, if you go read uh, the Bad Faith Lawyer's book on how to... How to win a bad faith case? The one thing they tell is they say, just ask the underwriter and the claims guy if they ever talked. And when they say no, you got them. 
right? How does the claims guy know what the intent was? Well, he's reading the policy. Well, you probably should have talked to the underwriter, right? So a lot of this, again, when you outsource stuff or you separate it, you lose the value, right? You, you think you're saving money, but you're really costing yourself more money. But wasn't it true in those cases that that, that, that was partly for the underwriter's own good, wasn't it, to, to separate so that they wouldn't be get too involved in claims that that wasn't always seen as being a good thing. You're saying that's, I that's don't just agree with that. Again, an underwriter has to see the claims coming, right? He has to be involved in that. And also, you know, you don't want a claims guy. I mean, I remember when I used to write with Homestead, there was a claims guy that I used to, you know, allege that he, he impacted my results by 20%. I called it the Dewey factor. Because it was his name was Dewey, and he, you know he fought me on every claim, and it basically increased every claim on on and that when I wanted to form my own insurance company, that was in my model. Look, we're producing this loss ratio now, and I know with the Dewey factor, I can do this much better. Um, but why do you want a Dewey factor in there? Right now, a lot of people would say, "Oh, you just want yes man around you." Believe me, in our business, you hear the negative from everybody. Right? <laughs> there, there's no lack of different opinions, and and I hear them all, and I listen to them all. But somebody has to be the decision maker. Somebody has to make the tough decision that with the insured. Right? That's the thing about an insurance relationship is if I do what my insured wants. I can't be in bad faith. Right? I sell you the policy you want, then I manage the claim you, the way you want. I might not agree with you. If you want me to pay some claim I, I don't want to pay, I'm going to go pay it. But I'm going to let you know that it's, you know, you're not going to go tell these next insurance people that a claim was paid that you didn't want paid. Because that's that's the biggest lie all these people tell is, you know, the insurance company shouldn't have paid it. Well, you told them to. You wrote them the letter. You gave them the settle letter. Yeah, but they don't have to settle if they don't want to. That's not true. Well, it's been really, really interesting uh, talking to Rick. I'm conscious that we've used up quite a lot of your time. Um, I just wonder, before before we sign off, if there's anything else that we haven't spoken about that you think we should talk about. No, I'm glad to be back in London, and uh, you know I think the next ten years will be a good, exciting time for everybody in the business. Well, I wish you all the best for everybody at Prime and and, and all all your partners here in London, and uh, and and I hope to speak to you again, and we, maybe we'll put a, put a date in the diary for the next time you're over to see, give us an update on what's happening because it's been absolutely fascinating talking to you. So thank you so much. Thank you. Rick. Thank you. Yeah, appreciate it. You've been listening to the Voice of Insurance.com produced by me, Mark Gagan. Original music was by Anna Gagan. Thanks for listening.